There in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14, let us now give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy and inspired word. And when the hour was come, Jesus sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And Jesus took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of God goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty and ever-blessed God, we do come before thee this morning and ask that by thy Spirit thou wouldst come and teach us through the work of thy Spirit. Lord, pour out thy Spirit upon thy servant who stands before thee. I ask, O Lord, that you would give me unction and power, that thou wouldst come and, and speak to hearts even here who may be under conviction, that thou wouldst come and work in the hearts of all who sit under the preaching of thy word. And we do give thee thanks, O Lord, for thy word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we have been making our way through the study of the Gospel of Luke, we have come to that last section of the Gospel where we find Jesus preparing to go to the cross. He is in that final day where he will stand and be sentenced to death, where he will suffer and die, and then on the third day be raised to life again. As we come here to our passage this morning, we have seen wonderful things in the Gospel of Luke. And I, I think it's easy for us as Westerners and as Americans to, to just feel like we're overwhelmed because there's so much here. And I want us to understand that God's Word is given to us to think upon, to meditate upon, not to just walk away from and think, oh, that was a nice sermon. Or not so nice sermon. But to think upon what God says in his word. And what does that have to do with me? Because Jesus reveals all of these things. But he comes to the high point of his earthly ministry here in chapter 22. We've seen the preparation last time of the feast of Passover. We saw... Satan entering into Judas Iscariot. And then we see the contraction that is made between Judas and chief priests and scribes. And then we see, as we saw last week, that day of preparation. The day of preparation for the Passover. But as we come to our text this morning, I want us to see here, particularly in verses 14 through 18, Christ's desire for his own. There in verse 14, after Peter and John had gone and made preparation for the annual Passover, or the annual 
Feast of Unleavened Bread. Feast of Unleavened Bread was seven days. Passover meal was eight in the evening. And as they made preparation for that Passover meal that was to be observed there, it states here that after they made all things ready, when the hour was come, Jesus sat down with the twelve apostles. And so this is that final few hours of the life of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't have days, he has a few hours. And as he's meeting with his disciples, I want us to think back. There's a good sermon series at some point from the Upper Room Discourse in the Gospel of John. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record that. But in John's Gospel, there's some wonderful teaching that arises from that time that Jesus spends with his disciples in that final few hours. But here we see that the apostles are gathered, all twelve of them. When the hour had come, that phrase that we have seen so often, when the time appointed by God in his good providence came about, Jesus sat down with the twelve. There is much teaching in the Gospel of Luke. There's much a picture of table. Jesus sits down at table with scribes. Jesus sits down at table with, with sinners. Jesus here reclines at a table. And in every culture, I've even seen it on those few occasions when I've had opportunity to, to uh, fellowship and Times past in some of my experiences with Somalians and, and others when I was in college, to see that they all sit down. They may sit on the floor. They may sit in often, oftentimes in differing positions. But there's always a communal aspect to that eating. It's not the old TV tray where you just plop it in front of the TV and you put your dinner down and you eat and you watch TV. No, a meal was a time for fellowship. A meal was a time for communion. And so Jesus here with his 12 desires to eat that Passover meal. And I don't want to draw much out of this, but always in the application of that communal meal and even in the centuries throughout the church, the church always had their communal meals at a table to indicate that they were united together in fellowship. And so Jesus and his disciples sat down. They reclined at table. It was customary for them to, to sit on the floor, and so they would recline in a reclining fashion. But the text tells us that when they were gathered together, when they were seated, when Jesus had their attention fixed and gazed on him. He said unto them, now he's speaking to the twelve, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Here we see Christ's desire for his own. There in that Greek construction there, when Jesus says, I have, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. He joins both the noun, desire, and the verb, desired. He joins them together. It's, it's this striking, intense use of language. That with desire, with increasing, with great desire, Jesus desires to eat this Passover meal with his disciples. It's a very striking phrase, emphasized here in light of the cross. Remembering all of this leads up to the cross. And so here we see Jesus' desire to sit down fellowship with them. I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. There's a desire here on the part of Jesus to endure 
the cross. If you go back to Exodus chapter 12, there in Exodus chapter 12, you see that scene of the whole Passover observance. And we won't look at the entirety of that passage, but I would encourage you to go back and look at that on your own. But there in chapter 12 of Exodus, we have Moses receiving instruction about how the Passover is to be observed. And note here in the beginning that God gives detailed instruction for how the Passover is to be carried out. He brings the people out of Israel in great triumph by the blood of the Lamb. And so, Jesus' desire for them is to endure the cross. In Exodus chapter 12, you have that scene where under Pharaoh's oppression, the people of God were enslaved to him. That enslavement of the people of God under Pharaoh was was bitter. It was very oppressive. And here we find a commemoration of that Passover observance that pointed to the Lamb that was slain. Jesus there in the upper room discourse, and particularly in John chapter 13, says, I will lay down my life for the sheep. There's a willingness and an obedience on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ. He desired to endure the cross. We've seen this in Luke. That he has this intense desire to go to Jerusalem because it's there that he will suffer. He is willing, as the writer of Hebrews says, he is willing and obedient even unto death. We see the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry actively obedient unto every detail of the law of God. He was obedient unto his parents. He was obedient unto civil and ecclesiastical authority. Jesus was obedient in all things. He never turned away from God's will. He never turned away from the law of God. But in his passive obedience, there was a willingness to go to the cross, as the prophet says, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The lamb who would give himself as a ransom for many. And so the Lord Jesus Christ has that intense desire to endure the cross. Some would say, well, Jesus... Well, we're not sure if he was fully human. There's some who would, who, would, who would recognize that or teach that. And that is certainly an erroneous position. But Christ in his full humanity, body and soul, endured every bitterness of the cross. He endured everything for the sake of the elect. As the Passover observance as they're eating those bitter herbs, as they're eating there at the table, the bitter herbs indicated the bitterness of their bondage, the bitterness of sin, the bitterness of being enslaved to sin. And yet Jesus willingly tasted the bitterness of the cross. He willingly tasted the wrath of God on behalf of, Of his elect. He never turned away. But here in this intense desire. In this desire. To eat this Passover meal. We find that the Lord Jesus. Is. Desiring to do. The will of the father. You go to the Gospel of John and you see this particularly in that upper room discourse, chapters 13 through 17. You see Jesus describing his relationship to the Father. He and the Father are one. They're one in purpose. They're one in essence. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are fully God. That they are 
equally God. Yet Christ in his full humanity went to the cross and was obedient to the will of the Father. There was an eternal covenant made with the members of the Godhead before the creation of the world. The Father chose to save a people. The Son chose to redeem a people. And the Spirit came to apply that work of redemption unto them. And so in that eternal covenant, as we call it, the covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there was this covenant arranged that there would be a full salvation made on behalf of the elect. There is an eternal elect that the Lord, there is an eternal love the Lord Jesus Christ has for the elect. In our day, even by some who claim to be Calvinists, there's this kind of weakening of this understanding that Christ died for the elect. Many good men, J.C. Ryle particularly, Christ died for all. Well, yes, he died for all men, all kinds of sinners. But there's a particular aspect to his love. There's a particular aspect to his death. His death was a particular death. His death was particularly for a people whom he had chosen. And you see that there in the upper room discourse and the, the teaching on Jesus being the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But in this cross that Jesus is willing to endure, as he's willing to endure that, as he's obedient unto the Father's will, the cross is seen as a conflict. Luke's gospel emphasizes it, and I hope we've seen this. Luke's gospel emphasizes the conflict that Jesus encountered in his ministry. And as he encountered that conflict, as Jesus encountered conflict with religious leaders, as Jesus encountered conflict with all kinds of people, we see it even here in this text, the conflict that will come. The cross is always seen as a conflict. Dr. Raymond, in his great work on the cross of Christ, says that the cross of Christ is a work of destruction. That Jesus, in going to the cross, went to destroy the works of Satan. That Jesus, in the cross, there is a conflict. Now, when we see conflict, what do we see? We see two opposing parties. Nobody gives. But this is not the kind of conflict we see with Jesus, where he's waging war against Satan and and seeing who's going to win. This is often depicted in in many modern uh, movies on, on the sufferings of Christ and his trial. But there is a conflict in the sense that Jesus comes and he encounters the full conflict with Christ. With, with Satan. And yet, as a faithful high priest, he willingly goes, bears the reproach on our behalf. And here we see our faithful high priest. Do you doubt this? Saints of God, do you doubt that the Lord Jesus Christ is your faithful high priest? Oh, we don't doubt that. We believe that. Oh, how often we become filled with fear. How often we become filled with, well, what what about this? What about this? What about this? We become filled with fear. And yet Jesus is our faithful high priest. We should not doubt this. Peter doubted it. Remember he loved you. And so Jesus desires to endure the cross. Jesus desires to fulfill the Father's will. But Jesus also desires here to enter in to that fellowship 
with his apostles. I've desired, I desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Here is a wonderful fellowship that takes place here. We just celebrated the Lord's Supper last Lord's Day and we came to that section on the preparation for Passover. As we're reminded of our approach to the table of the Lord, I oftentimes wonder, and I don't want to run rabbit trails with this, but I wonder how we advocate the unity and the fellowship at the Lord's table when we're sitting apart from each other in pews. That's just a side note to think about. But here they're reclined at table because there's a fellowship. There's a coming around the table to remember that Jesus loves his own. He desired fellowship with them. There's a wonderful section in John's account there in chapters 13 through 17 where Jesus shows that he desires to to enter into fellowship with them. And so there's a lot we could say more about Jesus' desire. But here he desires to enter into fellowship with him. We see that fellowship indicated in John 17 in Jesus' prayer for his disciples. He prayed for his own to encourage them. When people ask, why do we pray? If God is sovereign, why pray? Because Jesus, who was fully man and fully God, prayed for his people. Prayer encourages us in difficult times. And at this table, Jesus is sharing in fellowship with his disciples. He's feasting with them at the table. Now, the Passover commemorated the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. But the Passover also commemorated the deliverance from sin. When people observe Passover seders today, they never think about the fact that the Passover was a commemoration of Israel's deliverance from sin. And so Jesus' desire to eat with them, to eat this Passover meal, takes place here in the context of the Passover meal, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. This is the last Passover under this economy. Jesus will bring an end to that old administration. He will bring an end to that ceremonial law. He will bring an end to the annual Passover feasts. He will institute the Lord's Supper. This is his last Passover meal. Is the last supper that he has with his disciples. Martin Luther calls this the farewell drink. But Jesus is getting ready in just a few hours in the evening to be tried and executed. There's death. Remember, day began in the evening. So you're probably thinking, what are they doing in the dark Nailing a man to a tree. Well, that was the beginning of their day. But as we think upon Christ's desire for his own, we see, secondly, Christ's institution of the Lord's Supper. As we think upon this point here in our text, Christ's institution there in verses 19, or I'm sorry, verses 19 through 20, Christ instituted a simple and significant supper. There in verses 14 through 18, there is that fact that Christ desires to eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It speaks of that glorious age to come when Christ will eat that Passover meal with his disciples with his saints in heaven. And so it is there that Jesus institutes this simple and significant supper. As Jesus took bread and gave thanks, as Jesus took the cup after supper, if you go back to verse 17, it 
seems confusing, at at least in Luke's account, that he took the cup and gave thanks. And then he took the bread, and then after supper he took the cup. But verses 13 through, or 14 through 18 is the Passover observance. Verses 19 and 20 is where he institutes the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover. So verse 17, the cup that he took and gave thanks was the first cup. There were four cups in the Passover Seder. This is the first cup. Luke doesn't record all of the details of that. He just says he took that first cup, gave thanks, and notice it says he divided it among themselves. And so as he institutes this simple and significant supper in the context of the Passover, we see that under the old administration there was the sacrament of initiation, which is called the... um, circumcision, and then there's the sacrament of the Passover. Then in the New Testament, that changes to baptism and the Lord's Supper. But in the Supper of the Lord, there are four actions that we see clearly in the text. The first action is that Jesus took bread. He took ordinary bread. He did not take a piece of cardboard wafer that he had people put in their mouth so that it would melt. He took bread. There's an external thing here. He took bread and gave thanks. The second action we see is that Jesus blessed the bread and gave thanks for it. He gave thanks to the Father. Thirdly, we see the action of Jesus breaking the bread And then fourthly, we see the action of him giving it unto his disciples. He broke it and gave it unto them. And so here we see the actual breaking of bread. We see the actual giving of bread. There's three aspects to the administration of the Lord's Supper. That the minister who stands as a representative of Christ takes bread and as he takes it, he blesses it. There's an imparting of blessing to those who observe the sacrament. So there's the the taking of bread, there's the blessing of the bread, and there's the distribution of the bread. Then we could say also that there's the institution. Sometimes in our modern observance of the Lord's Supper, I'm always amazed in those occasions, and I think, where's the words of institution? Minister just stands up there and starts breaking bread and giving the cup out, and that's kind of kind of the, the modern notion. But here we see Jesus, four actions, taking, blessing, breaking, and distributing it among his disciples. There are external signs here. As I said, it is bread. It is not Oreos, it is not wafers, it is not all of the man-made inventions that we bring to the table. The Passover observance, Moses was given instructions how to prepare the Passover meal. Jesus here gives instructions. He takes bread, he takes a cup of wine, simple and yet significant. And yet in those external signs, there is bread And there is wine. There's much argument today over the type of bread. There's much argument over the the type of drink, whether it's grape juice or wine. Certainly the Passover Seder, they used wine. They used unleavened bread. And yet here we find the signs given. But we also see the matter signified. He gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Remember that scene from the life of Martin Luther? As much as we love Martin Luther, there's times when he just irritates you. When he comes to this is my body, what does he do? This is my body. 
he pounds it on the table and he says, this is literally my body. He doesn't say this represents my body. It is my body. And all of the, the arguing over, over what takes place in the sacrament, we see here that what's signified in the sacrament is Jesus giving bread which represents his body. We might do it in remembrance of him. When we come to that point in the Lord's Supper, there is a call for us to reflect mentally upon what that means. That Jesus gave his body for us. We are not to reflect mentally or carnally. We are to think by faith. We're to meditate upon the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. And that requires of us preparation before the sacrament. That requires of us much meditation and thought as we come. There's often a a sense in which we come to the table and we just kind of go through motions. There's there's signs here. There's a signification that happens. And so as Presbyterians, particularly as Reformed people, we take the view, not of consubstantiation, which is the Lutheran view, contrary to what some say, not the transubstantiation view of Rome, but the representative view. This is my body, that the bread represents Christ's body. Wine represents his blood. When Jesus broke the bread, the Old Testament says that when Jesus was nailed to the tree, that his body was not broken. But that has no reference here to verse 19. Jesus simply took bread and broke it so that he might distribute it for his apostles to eat. What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? There's much that we could state on this. But the Supper of the Lord is a sealing function. All of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are sealing in nature. The bread and the wine seal to the believer that they're partakers of Christ, that they've merited his suffering and death. They are not merely signs of the mutual communion of believers, as is the view of many. But in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? He not only promises to forgive the sins of believers, but here the sealing function of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is that Jesus instituted it for believers that they might find their blessedness in him, that they might understand that he gave his body and blood for us. There is a mutual communion among believers as we see it here with Jesus reclining at table. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. For we being many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Communion does not occur to all who come to the table. Communion only occurs for the one who is in that saving relationship with Jesus Christ. An unbeliever can come to the table. An atheist can come to the table. A child could come to the table with no instruction. But they're not enjoying that fellowship, that communion. In fact, it brings damnation to the one who comes. So communion is with the godly. With those who know that they are saved from their sins. And that the love of the Lord Jesus Christ extends to all. And so here we see that there's a communion, there's a sealing function within this sacrament. 
as the Lord Jesus Christ takes that bread. We see here that the disciples are reclining at the table for that new Passover that Jesus institutes. Now in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11, at the Old Covenant Passover Seder, guess what they did? They ate standing. They ate in haste. But in the Lord's Supper, they sit at a table, communing with one another. And so we find here the Lord Jesus Christ showing to those whom he desired to be in fellowship with. And he's given this sacrament for the church until he comes again to encourage them, to strengthen them. And so it is a, it is a reminder of what Christ has done for us, but it's more than that. It's a means of grace where Christ draws near to his people. It's a means where he grants unto us grace. He doesn't save us. We don't want to have that Romanish notion as we come to the table, but we want to have that right understanding that the Lord's table is a sanctifying thing. It draws us closer to Christ. And so in all the arguments that arise today, it's amazing to me that there's more argument among Christians over the Lord's Supper than any other issue. And yet Paul says that's the one thing that unites us. The one bread and the one body unites us as one people. But here as we see the Lord Jesus Christ saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood, the blood of the New Testament shed for you. There in verse 20, as Jesus speaks of the blood of the new covenant shed, or the New Testament, while it is certainly a commemorative service, commemorating and remembering the death of the Lord Jesus, it is a New Testament in my blood. Jesus, by his death, instituted the new covenant, which promises sanctification, promises that covenant renewal in him, the forgiveness of sins. In this New Testament, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is shed for us. There's a substitutionary death. The Lord gives himself on behalf of his people. Like the Passover lamb under the old administration, Christ died that his people might escape from God's judgment and wrath. This New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you, shows that Christ is the testator. He is the one who, at his death, opens for all believers that will. That says that all things he has given for the sake of his elect. And so this blood of the New Testament shows that Christ is the testator. That at his death, all things that he has promised to give believers are indeed ours. And what a blessed privilege it is. As we think about the institution of that sacrament, it's in that institution that we catch this glimpse of a betrayer. There in verse 21, just as Jesus has administered that new testament sacrament he says behold he says this to his disciples behold the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table now if you go back two weeks ago judas iscariot has conspired with chief chief priests and scribes to kill jesus during passover nonetheless but to kill him to take his life. And the text says there in verse 3 that Satan entered into Judas. You don't want to see necessarily an idea of demon possession, but there's a sense in which Satan entered his mind, his, his heart, where Judas was given over to what he wanted to do. And there's a lot of instruction here 
Because Jesus gives that warning to his disciples. Behold, the hand of my betrayer is at hand. The question comes, and this is a whole point which we don't have time to discuss. But was Judas one of Christ's elect? Did Christ die for Judas? The text says that all 12 were there when Jesus had the Passover meal with them. In John's gospel, it tells us that Christ loved his own, even unto death. Judas was included in that band of 12. So was he elect? Was he one of the disciples? Certainly, organically, outwardly, he was a disciple of Christ. Certainly, he was elected. He was called to a work. But the question is, did Christ die for him? We can have that discussion at another time. But here the text tells us clearly that my betrayer is at hand. His hand is with me on the table. In the other gospel accounts and in John, it states that Jesus took a sop, that is a piece of bread, and and dipped it in whatever they were eating. A sop is, is a piece of bread that's dipped, and Jesus took the bread and gave it to Judas because he betrayed him. And he says, he is with me on the table. The other question that comes is, was, Jesus, was Judas present at the Lord's Supper? Well, that is a, another question that raises a lot of controversy. But it was the position of John Calvin that probably he was present at the Lord's table. There in John 13, Judas was present at the foot washing service. Matthew Henry states that in verse 21 of this passage, most likely Judas was present among them for the Passover, for the Lord's Supper. I've wrestled with that. I've struggled with that. But the difficulty is, is in Luke's account of the gospel. It is not a chronology. It is not, okay, this happened, and then next this happened, and then next this happened, and then next this happened. You don't see an, a true chronology in all of the gospel accounts. Luke's account is very thematic. And so Luke focuses on certain themes. And so we can argue, I guess, over that point... But Judas at the table there in verse 21 is clear in Luke's account. There's no certainty on the order of time. But as Calvin says, I do not deny it. It is probable that Judas was at the supper. But notice there in verse 23, if, if he was there, it was instructive. But in verse 23... It says the disciples began to inquire. Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? They were beginning to wonder, who is this man who betrayed him? But notice what Jesus says there in verse 22. Woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Whatever point there might be, I think the gospel accounts don't clearly settle it because... There is no desire to quench our curious minds as to what may have been. Luke doesn't give any detail. Matthew and Mark don't give any detail. Certainly appears in John's gospel that Judas did leave before the Passover, Seder, or the Lord's Supper. But here we find two things I think that is so helpful. I think instructive for us as well. Here is a judgment that is given to Judas that indicates he was not of the elect, but was reprobate. There in 
Verse 21, Behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is on the table, and truly the Son of God goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And so verse 22, there is a warning. Woe unto that man. The scriptures affirm both the divine determination of God, that God ordains all things, even the evil acts of men, but it also affirms human responsibility. Jesus gives the warning that, Peter, or that Judas is under judgment, but he also gives a warning to the eleven when he says, This man, woe unto him who is betrayed. The question is, and we can examine our own hearts on this point, but when we come to the table of the Lord, do we come as those who've been redeemed, who understand the significance of Christ's death for us and what that means for us? Because there are often times, and all of us have experiences of it, we've known people that have been associated outwardly with the church, they've received all of the sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper time after time, and yet they walk away and, and never return unto Christ. And so we have a difficulty, I think, in believing that Judas could have been present there, because it indicates, well, wasn't Jesus fully aware of what was going on? Here it's an object lesson for his disciples. A warning for them not to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to find here in this passage great teaching for us. That the Lord Jesus Christ has given all things for the sake of the elect. In verse 23 states that in Matthew's account of this, Matthew 26, 23, Jesus, it's quoted from Psalm 41, 9, that my friend ate food with me, but he lifted up his heel against me. And that phrase, lifted up his heel against me, signifies that there was a betrayal of this one whom Jesus loved. This is difficult for us, but I think what we need to find here in this glimpse of the betrayal is that we need to guard our own hearts and the Lord's table is a time for us to reflect upon this. Do I desire fellowship and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm afraid that oftentimes we just go through the motions. Eating of the bread and drinking of the cup is just not a carnal, external thing. But there's a communion, there's a fellowship between believers and, and between Christ at that table. Perhaps we need to look at our own hearts and see Christ desires to eat with us. Do we desire that intimacy and that union with him. And so much more could be said of this, but I asked, posed that question this morning. What will we do with the Lord Jesus Christ who has given of himself for us? The events of Christ's suffering and death were all, as verse 22 says, ordained by God before the creation of the world. Do you know what? The salvation of every believer was ordained before the creation of the world. The love of Christ for sinners was ordained. His love for you, if you're resting in Christ, if you're following Him, if you're desiring Him, His love is for you. And so as we think upon this today, let us see in this passage, not just Christ's desire for us. But let us see that in the institution of the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder to us, it's a 
gospel in picture form that Jesus Christ died to save us. And if he died to save us, then we have the responsibility to go forth and to love him and to serve him. His death is the ultimate display of humility and service. As we think upon that, let us desire to go forth and to serve one another, to have that spirit of humility as we continue to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not know Christ today, you've not trusted in Him for your salvation, I would urge you to speak to me afterwards to speak about the things concerning the kingdom of Christ. But let us remember the necessity and the importance of coming and communing with Christ every time we observe the Lord's Supper. For this indeed is a wonderful means of grace. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do give thee thanks this morning for thy goodness and mercy. We do thank thee for thy desire to love thine own. Lord, we pray that even as we perhaps have in our minds some of these side issues that cause controversy, we pray that our hearts would be focused upon thee, that we would remember the love that thou hast for sinners, and that we would desire more than anything to love thee and to serve thee, and to walk in humble service as we serve one another. And we ask this in thy holy name. Amen. Let us conclude as we sing Psalm 84b, advancing still from strength to strength. <laughs>